You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. How are y'all doing today? Good morning, good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to greet y'all. My name is Scott Mahan. I'm the director of 514 Student Ministries. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. You're, you're welcome. No, I'm just playing. Uh, y'all are the ones that had the kids, so really it's on you. Now, uh, it's a pleasure to greet y'all. Here at Providence, we have a simple vision, and that is to make the gospel ignorable in our community. And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe it is the only way that we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And to that end, today, we're going to be continuing our series through, uh, called Revival and Reformation, where we want to be a people who return to the Lord and reach to our communities. And so today, we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and open up there. And if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that's okay. There should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you're able, please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are, excuse me, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Promise. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning. Hope you are all staying warm. Uh, My name is uh, Ty Gaston. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, It is really good to see you, and for any first-time guests, we want to welcome you as well. We are glad that you're part of our Sunday. Um, It is my joy uh, to have been given the responsibility to preach this morning, and uh, like Scott said, we're going to be continuing our series, uh, Revival and Reformation, and uh, this week, we're going to be jumping on the back end of Court's sermon last week, where he talked about uh, not only the prevalence of revival, but the need for it. And this week, we're going to talk about the white-hot center of every single revival. So if you would, would you please pray with me as we look to the Lord this morning? Father God, we come before you, and we ask that you would still our hearts, still our minds, and calm our souls. God, all of our fears and worries that we've walked in here with, we pray that uh, you would keep them at bay. The enemy would love nothing more than to distract us away from your word that gives life, away from your son that restores us. And so God, this morning as we submit ourselves underneath your word, would you teach us, would you instruct us, would you lead us? God, we run to your words because your words are the very words of life and we can go nowhere else. And so God, as we approach your throne with confidence, would you show us the grace that you've promised to show us and allow us to walk out of here understanding in a deep and powerful way the good news of your gospel. It's in your beautiful name we pray, amen. So this is gonna be a an appropriate illustration given the uh, next few days we're about to be entrenched in. Uh, But I remember where I was when I learned how uh, heat works. And uh, that sounds silly, uh, but uh, you would think it was in middle school or high school. And uh, although that was, it was probably taught there, I just was not paying attention and yucking it up with all the other 
um, arrogant teenagers. Uh, if you are an arrogant teenager, I'm really sorry. Um, that was not intentional, I promise, not in my notes. Um, I was stationed in Alameda, California in the Coast Guard. Uh, this is about 11 years ago or so. And uh, it was a Saturday morning and Megan and I were just hanging out at the house. And this is something that we just typically did. We had just had Caleb and um, I, you know, honestly, like I, I, I would like to say that it's because we had Caleb that we were hanging out at the house, but the truth is, is that we're just a boring family, so we don't do much. Uh, we, uh, yeah, we, we were stationed in multiple different areas across the country, and a majority of our time were spent within the confines of our living room, either watching movies or playing games together. That's really all that we did. I mean, we, we lived in Pensacola, or not Pensacola, but 30 minutes outside of Pensacola for two years, and we only went once uh, to the beach which is an absolute travesty because it is beautiful. Uh, We lived in uh, Alameda, California, which is right outside San Francisco. We went to the Golden Gate Bridge once, never went to Alcatraz, and never went to Monterey Bay. So what do you do? I just feel bad for my kids, to be honest, because we we don't get out much. But we're much, I mean, some of our friends that are here in the room now, they know that we don't plan much, but we will go to everything. Uh, if, so if you invite us to something, we will do it. We just, we're just not planners. We just don't think like that. Um, but Saturdays for us during that time, I remember because Caleb uh, was just born. Uh, I had uh, just done the real responsible thing as a grown adult and went and played basketball and tore my ACL and had reconstructive surgery. And so Caleb and I had the same problem of sitting on the couch, not being able to walk. And we, the, our favorite pastime in that moment as a family was to just watch TV. And so I came across a documentary about a, uh, about a heating system that was being used in the tundras of Alaska, uh, where they used physics to keep the ground that everyone walked on warm and ice-free. I know, super fun stuff. At the time, I wasn't aware that the concept of the word cold doesn't actually exist, that we simply use the word cold to describe something that doesn't have heat. In other words, the reason why something gets cold is because the object that has more heat sends its energy to the objects around it that has less heat. The reason why your coffee is currently getting cold right now is because the environment in this room is colder than the coffee, and the coffee is sending its energy out into it. Uh, The reason why refrigerators work is because you put something that contains more heat than the environment inside of the fridge, and that food item then releases all of its heat into the air around it, thus becoming colder. That may seem juvenile, uh, but at the time, this was revolutionary for me at, 20, at 23 years old. Uh, this company that I was watching a documentary of created these metal rods that extended deep into the earth where it was hotter than the ground above the surface and had a seemingly unending source of heat. This heat would naturally then travel up the metal rods and out above the surface melting the snow and ice and creating a warm environment for people to walk on. It's genius. It's awesome. So why do I bring this physics lessons to you this morning? Because at the very white hot center of every revival in the history of God's people, and I use God's people specifically because we see a myriad of revivals that take place both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is a call to the return to a redemptive God. When you have a message that calls people to repent and turn to the Lord, people respond and then go into their lives carrying that same message to a broken and fallen world. You can't help but have what history refers to as a revival. Because of sin, we are ready made to receive the heat of the gospel message. Our hearts long for redemption. It's why we do all that we do from working hard throughout the week to fixing the house, to working hard at the gym, playing video games, existing in the military, working hard at school. Our souls constantly are on a lifelong conquest to redeem what is broken inside of us. Sometimes, however, the things that we get convinced to run to provide temporary relief of that brokenness, but it never quite hits the mark. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this is where we find ourselves this morning, both in our lives and also in the text. There isn't a single person in this room, regardless of worldview, that believes that the world is good as it stands and isn't in need of change. However, 
before we can ever address the change needed in the world around us, we need to first draw our attention near to the white hot center of any real change, and that's the gospel of Jesus. Let's look to the text this morning. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3. A little bit of information before we jump into the text, a little little background to help us understand it. So the people of God um, constantly throughout the Old Testament, you see they commit this pattern of idolatry, repentance, rescue, idolatry, repentance, rescue. It's this constant repetition of sin habits that happen amongst the people of God. And here they find themselves in a very similar scenario. They're um, in Jeremiah, we, Jeremiah 7, we learn that the people of God have committed atrocities and God is going to punish them by sending them into captivity for 70 years. And right before he does this, right before he sends them into captivity with Babylon, he tells them the famous text that we all know, that we all love, that we've seen everywhere posted, if you are a Christian at all or not, is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven when he says, I've, I have plans to prosper you, give you a future, give you a hope. And all of these wonderful things that God promises his people. The problem is, is that 29 11 is great, but in order to understand the weight of 29 11, you have to read 29 10, which says that they're going to be slaves for 70 years. And it's after this 70 years that God will give them the future that he's promised to them. Well, in Zechariah, the people have returned from that exile and they're about 20 years in. And they're about 20 years into rebuilding the temple, but it's taking a lot slow, a lot, a lot longer of a time than they anticipated. And likely it's because of the way that they felt. They, again, they had been promised this prosperous life, this great opportunity that awaited them after the 70 years and it didn't immediately happen. And so they must have thought God just abandoned us. God just let us go. Because they just assumed that after 70 years, it was going to be their reality that wasn't. So this book begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and to not act like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets. And this, the people's response to Zechariah was ideal as they did repent and humble, the, humble themselves before God. And this, this is what happens in the very beginning of the book of Zechariah. And then it moves into this, these portions of paired visions. And what's important before we move into the book of Zechariah, if you take some time to read it, it's important to know that you shouldn't treat this book like any other book. This, uh, this is an apocalyptic book. It is not uh, to be read like one of Paul's letters. It's not to be read like the Psalms. It's not to be read like Genesis. It's not a narrative. It's not a, his, it's not a historical book. It is merely an apocalyptic book where God is speaking to his people in profound visions and dreams. And we, we really don't have any category or folder of book to understand it in our current time. Uh, so it's, we can't read it like any other book. We shouldn't try to come up with it uh, with any modern connections because you'll see a lot of weird visions, a lot of weird things happening inside of the text. And the worst thing you could do is try to pair modern interpretations with what's going on in Zechariah's vision. If people do this all the time with the book of Revelation and they get off into some weird interpretations. And so you don't want to do that where you're trying to interpret grasshoppers into helicopters and all of a sudden if you see an Apache, now you're scared that the end times are coming. You don't want to do that. And people have done that with Revelation in all of history. In fact, G.K. Chesterton said it this way when talking about this book. Because it was St. John um, as he referred to him, John wrote the book of Revelation and he said, and St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, but he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And this is the risk that you run into when you, uh, when you read Zechariah. These visions are paired together and communicate um, a lot of the same messages with different tones. And, and in the, so we have... Um, the first and the eighth, eight different visions, the first and the eighth are paired together. They're about the four horsemen uh, and they're keeping watch over the nations and report that the world is at peace. And this is what begged the question of the people. If the 70 years of Babylon of captivity are, all, are already over and peace is had, does that mean that we're about to start rolling in prosperity? And God in the eighth vision answers his people says, and reminds them, yes, it, this, that is what it means, but refuses to give them a timeline. 
And so God just kind of leaves them hanging on that. And then you have the second and seventh vision, and these two are paired together concerning the sin that led God's people into exile in the first place. And then you have the third and sixth visions, and these two are paired together concerning the rebuilding of the new Jerusalem and what that's going to look like. Uh, The sixth one's really cool because it's the vision of a flying scroll flying about the city, judging all of those that that have sinned. And it's this idea that God is going to create a pure uh, Jerusalem by his word. And this week we find ourselves in the fourth vision, which is paired with the fifth one. And they describe two key leaders among the exiles and what the Lord is going to do with them. One of them being Joshua, who we're going to read about this morning. The other one in the fifth vision, uh, his name is Zerubbabel. But before we jump into Zechariah 3 in this fourth vision, it's important to know three different characters that are there. And there's a few other side characters, but the three main ones are important for us this morning. So the first one is Joshua. And this is not the Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. I mean, that, that man lived centuries and centuries before this time. Instead, this was Joshua who was a high priest um, and he was one of the 50,000 exiles who have returned from, uh, from Jerusalem out of exile. And as a priest, it is his job to represent all of God's people. And in this vision, Joshua embodies the humanity that God loves and God has called to serve him. So that's character number one. Character number two is Satan. And Satan's work in this vision is to accuse and slander God's people who are represented by Joshua and to deceive them regarding their guilt. And then lastly, the third one is the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord should be understood for us as the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. And we see this all the time in the Old Testament. When you see the angel of the Lord spoke, most of those times, that is, that is what theologians call a Christophany, where Christ appears before he's incarnate. And so this is one of those moments where Christ appears in the vision of Zechariah. Now, knowing that Joshua, the high priest, one of the members of the exile community, Satan and the angel of the Lord, or Christ is present. Let's jump into the text. Zechariah 3, verses verses 1 through 3 says this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now Joshua, who we learned is a representative of the people of God, stood before God with his filthy garments. And this is a common theme that you see throughout the Bible and usually describes uncleanness. Uh, And honestly, it's a all throughout the Bible when you're reading both in Old Testament and New Testament, you see these balancing paradoxes that exist. You see clean and unclean, sin and holy, darkness and light, life and death, slave and free. You see a lot of uh, balancing paradoxes. But when we look at filthy garments here, it's almost impossible to describe how strongly the Hebrew language talks about the filth of Joshua's garments. These were not simply clothes stained with just a few spots of sweat and dirt, nor were they garments that have uh, gone too long out of the washer with a whiff of body odor on them. The word filthy translates here probably the strongest expression that the Hebrew language had to offer something loathsome and vile. The word used here is directly related to the Hebrew term for human excrement. Joshua is standing here trying to serve the Lord, yet he is absolutely contaminated with filth. And when we look at these kind of garments in general, it is meant to point to sin and that it covers us in totality. In fact, garments in general are a type of flag that, have, that has been waved since sin came into the world. I mean, when we look at the Garden of Eden pre-fall, what we see is that the people are walking throughout the garden, Adam and Eve, are walking naked and unashamed. They betray God, eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then they, ha- they realize they're naked and have to clothe themselves. Garments at that point serve as a flag of, sh- of showing that sin is in the world and something is broken. But that is especially true whenever you have filthy garments. And when we learn uh, throughout some of the other prophets that our righteousness is of filthy rags. In other words, 
both good works and bad works, if we try to do them on our own, are nothing but filthy garments to the Lord. And this is meant to point to sin and that it covers us in totality. And the message that it creates is that it is unavoidable and completely covers us as garments do. So what we learn in Genesis about sin is that they were walking in this perfect harmony that God had created this in, this world that existed was perfect without sin there's not a single problem with it god looked at it and it was good it had harmony it had rhythm and everything that it was supposed to until adam and eve deceived by the enemy betrayed god and ate of the tree of knowledge and good of good and evil and so adam and eve in that moment didn't just betray god they didn't just know what evil was but they actually became evil that the very thing that they came to realize when they ate of this tree was that they were the problem. It's a little bit of irony. And in summary, when it comes to sin, the Bible lists sin as both omission, where we do not do what we ought to, and commission, where we do what we ought not to do. Sin includes our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our motives. It includes godlessness, which is ignoring God and living as if there were no God or as if we were God. At the end of the day, sin is idolatry, which is the replacing of God as preeminent with something or someone else, most, most often ourself. Sin includes individuals, communities, networks, and the like as individuals labor together for the cause of sin. Sin includes entire ways of thinking and acting. Sin includes ideas. Sin, sometimes sin is also a crime, such as murder, and sometimes it's not, such as adultery. Sin can be done deliberately or in ignorance. The practice of a particular sin can occur once, regularly, or frequently. Sin includes breaking God's laws, breaching just human laws, defying godly authorities such as parents or pastors, and violating one's own conscience as well as conviction wrought by God the Holy Spirit. Sin includes perversion, using things for evil purposes, using good things for evil purposes. Sin includes pollution, infecting good things with evil. And lastly, sin is the turning of a good thing into a God thing, taking something that God intended for his purposes and used for your own. Cornelius Plantinga said it this way, The Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness expressed in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. And it does all this disrupting and resisting in a number of intertwined ways. In other words, sin is incredibly pervasive and it escapes none of us. And even though we can see a lot of the things happening on, on the surface and how sin disrupts our lives, the first and foremost issue that we see is that it puts distance between God and us. Yes, we see that sin creates distance between man and man and man and creation. The work is hard. People are difficult. But the most pervasive thing that sin breaks is our relationship with God himself. And the truth is, is that with this foremost issue at hand and at stake, we are almost guaranteed that change and growth in our lives will never happen so long as sin continues to reign in our hearts, which leads me to point number one. To see revival and reformation of the soul, we must repent of our sin. If we're going to see the kind of change that we desire in our lives, families, and communities, we must start at owning our and repenting of our sin. We can't afford to minimize our sin because others are worse. 
We can't afford to legitimize our sin because grace is real. We can't afford to rationalize our sin because our circumstances are difficult. We can't, uh, we can't afford to blame shift our sin because there are others involved. I saw this really, um, this really awesome image uh, on Facebook before the fast. Um, and I need to make that known. Uh, it was a, it was an image of a broken egg and on that and a broken egg on top of a counter. And there were three different points that it was making. The first one, it said, um, I did not have any, it was not my intention to break the egg. Point number two was, um, it was in my, it was in my greatest desire to keep the egg and give it to you. And point number three was, I broke the egg. And point number one and two were crossed out. And point number three was left as it were, and it said, this is what ownership looks like. Because the truth is, is that we can have the greatest intention of the world, we can have the best strategy in the world, the greatest structures in place, but at the end of the day, if we sin, we just need to own the sin. We can address the structures around it later, the, the intentions, all the things that we wanted to happen, we wish it happened, what we felt like our heart was, but before we address any of that, we just need to own the sin. We just need to be able to say, I, I broke the egg, and I'm sorry. When it comes to repentance, we can't afford to blame shift our sin because others are involved. Instead, we just need to own it. We can't afford to divert it away because we were just joking. We can't afford to victimize ourselves to the point where it doesn't allow us to actually repent. Brothers, sisters, friends, there are times in our life where we will be victimized. People will sin against us in both small and heinous ways. And I want to be one of the first ones to say, I'm really sorry that that happens, if that has happened in your life. But if we're really going to understand sin, we have to understand that we are, at least in our lives, we have to consider any culpability that we may have when people wrong us. We can't allow ourselves to get to the point where we consider ourselves sinless, even if it is for a particular moment. And lastly, we can't afford to confess sin to appease the audience in front of us with no intention of actually repenting. Repentance is a glorious gift that is given to the children of God because of the work of Christ. We shouldn't shy away from it. We shouldn't run from it. It is in repentance that the fangs of sin are removed and the blade of condemnation is worn down. It is where true life is had. When we repent of sin, we give and provide ourselves an opportunity, not just before God, but before others, to be fully known. And if you become fully known, it places you in, a, in, a, in an opportunity to be fully loved that you can feel the full weight of redemption and you are fully known. Now, let me be clear about that. God fully knows you regardless. There's no, there's no skirting around that. God knows you fully, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But there's something about the confessing of that sin, which is why I think the Bible tells us to do it. There's something about the confessing of the sin that relieves the soul and opens the soul up for redemption, love, and grace. Repentance is a glorious gift that's given to us. And the only reason why it is weird, hard, and difficult is because we just don't do it enough. There's a, there's a reputation that Martin Luther had in the, at the monastery. Martin Luther, when he was a monk, he would spend hours every single day repenting to his brothers and it got to the point where they wanted to kick him out and tell him don't come back because he just wouldn't stop repenting of things that he felt like he had betrayed God on and it's because the more and more he read his word the more and more he drew near to a holy God the more he realized he wasn't the closer he got to God the closer he got to the white hot center of God's holiness the more he realized that he was lacking and he couldn't help but re it would repent and when he repented he felt freedom 
Because when we repent, the fangs of sin and the stakes of the enemy in our heart have no power. Let's keep, let's keep reading. Well, in fact, in, we're going to relook at Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. It says this, And then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now in this moment, before we get to the meat of the text, we learn that Joshua is standing before God in his filthy garments, but it's not just Joshua who's going to have to give an account before God, the Holy One, but he has someone else with him. And that person is standing at the right-hand side of him, ready, and his whole purpose for being present is to accuse Joshua and all the filthy garments that he had. And what we learn is, is that if we're going to see any kind of revival and reformation, we don't just need to repent of our sin. This is point number two. To see that kind of revival and reformation of the soul, we need to flee from our accuser. Because this is what the enemy does. He comes into the presence of God and tells the truth about us. He comes into the presence of God and says, we, they are sinners, they are sinful. They have done, said, and thought things that, that should offend and displease you. You are holy God, are you gonna put up with this? And those things are true. But Satan's accusations against us are always accompanied by hopelessness. He not only accuses us of having sinned, which is true, but he also tells us that we are beyond God's reach, which is not true, which is a lie. Satan uses our guilt as a weapon to make us feel hopeless and to keep us distant from God. Or even more dangerous, Satan tries to convince us that everything is okay with us spiritually when things are not actually okay. And this can be implied um, and is implied by several theologians in this text that Joshua is standing there confidently in this, uh, in this vision and he has a confidence that he shouldn't have because his garments are gross. But he's standing there confident, almost being convinced that everything is okay. Sometimes Satan will try to convince us that everything is, okay, everything is okay with us spiritually when we know they're not, and he makes us feel innocent when we are guilty, clean when we are dirty, virtuous when we are wicked, and godly when we are unholy. The truth is, is that Satan hates us and will do anything he can so that we will continue in a sin that is destroying us. And sometimes that sin is just simply not drawing near to God because you think you're not good enough, or that sin is you thinking that you're perfectly fine, everything's okay, and who are you? There's really no need to repent. Friends, we have to remember that we have an enemy that hates us, hates our families, hates our church, and everything that we stand for. We have an accuser, and to ignore this accuser is akin to closing your eyes and walking onto I-45 in rush hour. Nobody would advise that, obviously. However, notice what is said just, uh, just after this, just, or I'm sorry, just before the filthy garments are mentioned. Just before Joshua is told about how filthy he actually is, whether he actually realized it or not, before he's told, God says this to Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked by the fire? Now, I bring that up again because God makes his claim on Joshua the high priest, who is a representative of his people. God makes a claim on his people regardless of the filthy garments. He hasn't, we haven't even got to the part of the text where God switches out the filthy garments for the pure ones and he just says, no, I know why you're here. I know you're here to accuse. I don't care. That's mine. They are mine. They wear my stamp. And so you can be here, you can accuse all you want, but there's nothing you can say that I don't know and you have no power or authority here to make a claim that I can't. And so God looks at Joshua and he says, is this not 
a brand that I have plucked out of the fire? Is this not my child? Who are you to accuse? Which is why he gets rebuked. Satan comes into the courtroom of God with confidence and authority that he does not have. And the Lord rebukes him. This is something declared by God regarding the station of Joshua and should provide us the kind of peace that we need to walk forward with confidence. Now the enemy, he doesn't just accuse, but he also will attempt to ruin the very tools that we have to fight against his works. And one of those things is to dilute the gospel to a point that it is unusable. So before we actually talk about the good news of the gospel, we need to understand what the gospel is not. And the enemy has spent years and years since his fall. He has spent years coming up with different ways to dilute this message. And some of the ones that we see now today um, are as follows. And just so you know, before I read these, they are all true statements, but they are not merely true. This is what the enemy does. And he plays the same game every single time, plays the same game of poker with the same hand, face up on the table for all to see. He takes something that is true and he dilutes it or he adds to it or he takes away from it. And it's true enough for you not to question it. But it's wrong enough for you to never get it right. It's this. One of the ones that we, that dilutes the gospel, the gospel is not simply that God is love. Now this is true. It's in the Bible. God is love. But the problem is the definition of love that gets thrown around with this statement is not connected to God's idea of love. It's connected to the idea that we can do whatever we want, whatever we desire, and there's no actual call to holiness. Man, whatever, I'm God's love. Everyone has heard the phrase at some level, if you really love me, you'll do. And if every parent in the room has certainly heard that. But now we know that isn't right. But what does the Bible say about what love is? Love is sacrifice, giving one's life, serving one another in generosity. And that isn't just towards others, that is towards God. That God has shown us sacrifice, gave of his life, served us, and has given abundantly to us. And we respond in kind by sacrificing our life, giving our life for him and one another, serving both God and his church, and giving both back to God and to others. In other words, biblical love is always connected to biblical duty. Hebrews 12 says that without holiness, without a pursuit of it, no one will see the Lord. God's love is more than mere acceptance. It is a tapestry of his character attributes that is found in Christ's work for us and his call to follow him. So the gospel is not simply that God is love. The gospel is also not simply that Jesus wants to be our friend or is merely an example. Again, these ideas are biblical, but when this is what we, are, we reduce it to, we portray and believe in a gospel that lacks the necessary teeth for change in the soul. When Jesus is portrayed as merely a friend, he isn't portrayed as the king that he is, the king that is in Revelations 5, who no one can open the scrolls except for him. When we, when we merely reduce as Jesus to just one of our buds, just one of our friends, he's just, you know, hanging with the homies. When that's our Jesus, we don't actually get the king that the Bible talks about. And lastly, believing in the gospel is not simply that we should live rightly. Just because the moral principles of your life align with biblical principles doesn't necessarily mean that you are a Christian and that you believe the gospel. Saving belief in the gospel is more than just an intellectual assent or moral way of right living. We must come to the grips with the fact that we, on our own, are unable to satisfy God's demand on us. Yes, God is love. He is our friend. He is an example, and we ought to follow it. However, to merely reduce him to any of those undercuts the very good news that we celebrate every single Sunday. So in order to understand the gospel, the true good news of Christ and what he's done for us, we have to understand what the gospel is not. And it's not merely any of those things. 
So let's learn what it is. Zechariah 3, verses 4 through 9, says this. And the angel said to, to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. We get this beautiful picture of what the gospel is, that it's not merely something good we ought to follow, but it's a removal of the old garments and a replacing with new garments. It's removal of filthy garments and given pure vestments. It's, it is not simply a recreation or a redemption of something that was old. It's not a recycling of who we are and we all of a sudden are now a Christian. No, we are new. We are made new. We are a new creation in Christ. What I love about one of the things that he says here is God, God doing these things in this vision is, should be good enough. Like God saying, remove the old garments, give the new garments. That should be good enough for all of us. But he doesn't just stop there. Instead, he says that he solemnly assured Joshua. He took a moment to not just do the things, but to take him aside and say, see, I did it. I told you that I would do it. And I did it. Solemnly assuring Joshua, behold, I have made you new. You see this language of beholding throughout all of the Bible. And you have this, uh, it's this idea that what you behold is what you become. So if you behold something, you will become like it. It's why we have to be careful to not behold anything but Christ in our life or we will start to become like it. You see this in, uh, in, the, in themes throughout the Old and New Testament that people that worship idols, that behold idols, start to look like them. But God here in this moment says, no, the thing that I'm beholding is my child. And in beholding of me, he will also become like me. He then, he then goes on to say that he's going to that he's if Joshua and his friends continue to walk in faithfulness, that they will be a sign, a sign that, w- in other words, as they live their life, it will point to the branch. And we all, if if you if you've read any Bible or know any Christian uh, theology at all, we know that that branch is Christ. That. As we follow God and walk in faithfulness, the watching world will look at the church and see Jesus. And moreover, the idea of the Messiah as a stone depicts his dependability and sureness. This stone that's put before Joshua. His ability to overcome God's enemies is portrayed in the stone and his distinctiveness is the foundation for the church. Because later on, he's not just a stone sitting before Joshua, the high priest, but instead he is the cornerstone by which all of the church will be built. Notably, the stone represented to Joshua has seven eyes. And these seven eyes symbolize the full wisdom of God who sees and knows all and who judges with perfection and fullness. There's a lot of different ways that theologians have gone gone about interpreting the seven, the seven eyes. Some people have said it's facets. Some people have said it's different sides. But the most logical conclusion we can come here when we look at this text is that it's the seven eyes because we, in Zechariah chapter four, it says, it clarifies the seven eyes that it's God who sees in all the earth. 
And I think that this brings to light and brings a little bit more clarification, power, and weight to the fact that before he even started talking about the sin that was very evident in Joshua's life, that he said, I, I know everything. I am the God that sees in all the earth. I created the heavens and the earth and I see everything that's there. I see every sin that's done, every sin that's not. I see the past, present, and future. I see everything before me and I'm looking at Joshua and he is mine. I'm looking at my children and they are mine and there's nothing you can do to change my mind on that. And we have an enemy that will love nothing more than to convince us otherwise. And so if we're going to see revival and reformation of the soul, it's not just that we need to repent of our sin and flee from our accuser, but we also need to cling to our Savior, the branch who gives life. The branch who, in the text, says that he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That the, the engraven inscription on him, representative of the very lashes that Christ took, remove the iniquity of our land, remove the weight of sin on our hearts. And so to see revival and reformation of the soul, we must cling to our Savior. And when we look at this text in in Zechariah 3, we see this legal language, as we've already pointed to, that God, this is the courtroom of God, and God's seated on the throne, and no one can accuse This is where in the uh, book of Romans, when Paul is talking at the end of Romans chapter eight, and he says, who could bring a charge against God's elect? Only God can justify, God can judge. That's only him. He's the only one that can seat on that throne. James chapter four tells us that we can't judge the uh, living and the dead, but God can. He's the only one that that can sit in that position, no one else. You constantly in the Bible see this, this legal language that's there, and we see it again here in Zechariah chapter three. It's even more affirmed in Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 15. It says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. What's that record of debt? The wages of sin is death. He canceled that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, we will have accusers, both principalities and powers of darkness and people on this earth that have been co-opted by the enemy that would love nothing more than to convince you that you are not good enough to follow God. You are not good enough to be in his presence and that you just need to stay away. They'll rid you with shame, rid you with condemnation, and convince you that at the end of the day, you should just sit and sulk and just continue in your sin because who are you to grow out of it? Friends, that couldn't be further from the truth. If you've called on the name of the Lord Jesus and you have given your life to him, not only are you free from sin, but you have a God who has labeled you his own. Not only are you free to walk out of the bondages that the enemy and sin try to put on you. But you bear a name that is Christ's. Those filthy garments that you think that you walk around with, you don't. You've been given new vestments, pure garments, and you can walk in freedom. And I'll end on this. How will we know? What are the results of the Messiah's redemption? And forgiveness, as described at the end of this passage, where we read it in Zechariah 3.10, it says this. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under, the, under his vine and under his fig tree. In Hebrew culture, this is a figure of speech. And this figure, figure of speech is, is meant to communicate absolute peace. You will know that you have repented of your sin fully and you are fully known and fully loved when you, when you have repented, when you have flee, fled from the enemy and when you have clung to a savior, how will you know? Because you will experience the absolute peace of God. And you won't just experience peace to terminate on yourself, but you will invite others 
to that peace, that you yourself, as you live as a Christian, you will be a sign to the Savior, the Savior who offers that kind of peace, the Prince of Peace. And as you're a sign that points to that, people will run to it. So how do you know that you are walking in faithfulness? Your life will be rid with peace and others will want it, we will want it for themselves. Friends, if you find yourself in a place where that's not your reality, then I would encourage you to do one of the three things that we talked about. Whether that's sin that you're aware of or sin that you're, you're not, if you're aware of it, then my encouragement would be to, to lay it before the Lord. Hebrews 4 tells us to come before the throne of grace with confidence. You have a Savior who is able to empathize with you. You've been granted access before the king. Use that access. If you're unaware of, what that, of, if, of any sin that may be there, then do as Psalm 139 has told us and, and ask God to search your heart and find any wicked way within you. If you feel like, I just keep getting hit from every side. I feel like I have an enemy that just will not stop. He is relentless. Well, friends, God has given us permission to disregard that enemy. Not only does he not have authority, but he has given you authority to cast him away. He has no power over you. And my prayer for you is that you would lay a hold of it. And lastly, if you've done those two things, then friends, cling to the Savior that has rescued you. Cling to the Savior that would love nothing more than to share that grace and mercy with you this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we run to you. There's nowhere else that we can go and no other words that we need to hear. And so God, in the areas of our life that are not in line with your gospel, if there's any area of our life that is hidden and sinful, we ask that you would expose it. Expose it so that we can experience freedom. God, it is in your good news, it is in your gospel that we can walk and live in peace. So God, this morning, help us to experience that peace. It can only come from you. In Jesus' name, amen.